We're going to be in Psalm 102 this morning, uh, so you can go ahead and turn there in your Bible if you have one, and if you don't have one and would like one, um, there are some over over there, uh, and we're going to spend our whole time really in Psalm 102, hopping around a little bit this morning, but there's, a, there's an outline on the back of your bulletin that might be helpful for you as we walk through it and maybe take some notes and, and, and memory, remember some things as the week goes on. Uh, just to kind of introduce it a little bit, I need to... Um, Kirsten and I uh, were married in 2001, so uh, 12 years ago uh, that Kirsten and I were married. We were married on May 19th, and after we got married, we spent a week, uh, did a honeymoon at my aunt's cottage in northern Wisconsin, and then we returned back to Orange City, Iowa, where we were college students. It was between our junior and senior year of college, and so we all of a sudden needed to pay for everything on our own. We needed to pay for school and pay rent and all that kind of stuff, and so we needed to make some money, uh, and so our job was at our college. We actually worked for the college and in the maintenance department. Kirsten got put on the outdoor crew, uh, and I got put on the indoor crew, uh, and so we were on different crews, and we would spend our days working, and I had some experience cleaning uh, in my own house, and I even worked for a hotel for a while where they had me do some cleaning, so I've, I've, I've cleaned some other things. But I had not yet ever experienced the joy of cleaning. Like, I'd cleaned, like, at a hotel room, okay? Like, a hotel room, it gets cleaned pretty much every day. And somebody stays in there one night, and then you clean it. It's not that bad. But I got to have the experience of cleaning a boy's dorm room that had been slept in by a dude for nine months uh, and probably not cleaned at all during that period of time. And so, among many other things, the floors in those dorm rooms, tile floors, were just nasty, and so I, needed, I, needed, I knew I needed to do something about it. I knew how to use a mop, but a mop wasn't going to cut it on a floor like that. And so I was introduced to this tool. And I saw this tool, and I looked at the tool, and I thought, I think that tool will do the job. And I don't even know what you call it. It was this circular thing that you would attach this big abrasive cleaning pad to, and it had a motor on top, and then these big handlebars that came up and a little trigger kind of thing that you'd pull, Okay. I knew that that was going to be the tool that did the trick to clean those floors. However, I had no experience whatsoever in using one of those things. It seemed pretty simple. So I plugged it in and started going with this thing. And it didn't have a steering wheel. I don't know if you've seen one of these things, but they don't have a steering wheel. And so I get it going, and then the motor does its thing, and it makes the thing go. And then the cleaning pad is going like this. But I didn't know how to control it. And so I'm trying to fight this machine and I'm just holding on to these handlebars as the machine is pulling me all over the place. And any time a scrawny dude like me fights against the machine, the machine always wins. And so that's what was happening. machine was winning. But thankfully, my supervisor, Diane, had some experience using this machine. And she taught me and Brandon and Mary how to use this. So that for the rest of the summer, we could wield this useful tool in battling those nasty boys' dorm room floors. I was grateful for Diane's instruction. That helped me out a lot. This morning, we're going to talk about this. When life gets dirty, I mean really messy, like boys' dorm floor messy, how is it that we are supposed to pray? We know, kind of instinctively, even people that aren't Christians, even people that don't, don't even really trust in Jesus, they know when stuff gets hard, we're supposed to pray. We know that's the tool we ought to use. But the problem I think a lot of us have, even those of us who have maybe been praying for a long time, is we don't often know exactly how to use it most appropriately. 
And once I learned how to use that thing, it's something about you do this. Once I learned how to do it, it became much more useful to me as a tool. And so we're going to be talking about how we pray. We can learn a lot of things from the Psalms, and we've been doing that throughout the summer. But I want to specifically focus in on this Psalm as it teaches us how to pray in the midst of our suffering. How is it that we can go to God when we are suffering? Again, you can take notes if you'd like on that outline in the back of your bulletin. I'm going to read Psalm 102. And as we read God's Word, I'm going to say a lot of words this morning, but this, this we know for sure is the Word of God. And so to kind of make that stand out, we actually, if you're able to, will stand together as I read God's Word. Psalm 102. Here's the Word of God. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Let my cry come to you. Do not hide your face from me in the day of my distress. Incline your ear to me. Answer me speedily in the day when I call. For my days pass away like smoke. My bones are burning like a furnace. My heart is struck down like grass and is withered. I forget to eat my bread. Because of my loud groaning, my bones cling to my flesh. I'm like a desert owl of the wilderness, like an owl of the waste places. I lie awake. I'm like a lonely sparrow on the housetop. All the day my enemies taunt me. Those who deride me use my name for a curse. I eat ashes like bread and mingle tears with my drink. Because of your indignation and anger, for you have taken me up and thrown me down. My days are like an evening shadow and I wither away like grass. But you, O Lord, are enthroned forever. You are remembered throughout all generations you will arise and have pity on Zion. It's the time to favor her. The appointed time has come. For your servants hold her stones dear and have pity on her dust. Nations will fear the name of the Lord, and all the kings of the earth will fear your glory. For the Lord builds up Zion. He appears in his glory. He regards the prayer of the destitute and does not despise their prayer. Let this be recorded for a generation to come, so that a people yet to be created may praise the Lord that he looked down from his holy height, from heaven, the Lord looked at the earth to hear the groans of the prisoners, to set free those who were doomed to die, that they may declare in Zion the name of the Lord, and in Jerusalem his praise, when peoples gather together in kingdoms to worship the Lord. He has broken my strength in mid-course. He has shortened my days. O oh my God, I say, take me not away in the midst of my days, you who years endure throughout all generations. Of old, you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You'll change them like a robe, and they will pass away, but you are the same, and your years have no end. The children of your servants shall dwell secure. Their offspring shall be established before you. You can be seated. I need a guide for prayer, and I hope that this guide for prayer this morning is helpful for you. It's been helpful for me to even study through it my, on my own this week and prepare this message. Psalm 102, the first thing that I got as I looked at Psalm 102 is I recognized that I'm not always praying like the psalmist does. In verses 1 and 2, we see the psalmist praying with a great sense of urgency and passion. Would you say that you pray that way? Do you pray with a great sense of urgency and passion all the time? I know I don't. 
And I was convicted of this as I read this. One thing that we'll see in Hebrew poetry is they use a tool of poetry called parallelism. They'll say the same thing two different ways. Okay? And that's the, right at the beginning of verse 1. You see that. He's saying, hear my prayer, O Lord. Let my cry come to you. He's saying the same thing in two different ways. But the words that are parallel there are prayer and cry. Let my cry come before you. Usually when I'm praying, it doesn't sound like a cry out to God. And I, and I know it needs to be that. This kind of longing, urgent cry out to God. We know how to cry out. We know how to do that. When you hit your toe on the same table that you've stubbed it on many, many times, you cry out instinctively, oh! or something like that, right? And, and, when, and when your team scores and you're watching the game and you're into it, you might cry out very instinctively, yes! And we cry out all the time, but as we come before God in prayer, do we come before Him in that way, crying out with, with kind of passion and urgency? Notice how he's not, he's not messing around. He's not even being very patient with God. Did you see how his request in verse 2? He says, God, incline your ear to me. Don't hide your face from me. Okay, so he's, he's addressing God personally, which is something we do in prayer. We can address God personally. But then he says, answer me speedily in the day when I call. None of this, God, whenever, whenever it seems good to you. He's like, I want an answer now, God. And you'll see why in just a little bit. Because we see in verses 3 through 11, that the psalmist is suffering. He's not at a period of life where he's just like, hey, I've got time whenever you want to answer God. He's coming to God with a great sense of passion and urgency because he's hurting right now, and he needs help right now. What does he need help with? Look at verses 3 through 11. Point number one is this. When we are spent, when we are suffering, we come to God with, you can fill in the blank in your outline there, honest prayers. We can come to God with honest prayers. I love that about this psalm, that the psalmist is being very honest with God. It's not a very calm, cool, calculated prayer like mine so often are. He's letting God know, here's what's going on. He is bringing before God his laundry list of complaints. You can see it in verses 3 through 11. Go ahead and look at those. He says things like, my bones are burning like a furnace. My heart is struck down like grass that's withered. I forget to eat my bread. Some of you have suffered to the point that you, you know what he's talking about. I don't understand feeling like my bones are burning, but, but maybe you understand a broken heart that feels like the grass that I just cut at my house this week. I cut it. It was green. It was nice. I cut off the top. The part that I cut laid down in the grass, and now that part that I cut off is now brown. And the psalmist says, that's what my heart feels like, God, like grass that just got cut and it's just withering away. That's how I'm feeling right now, God. And he comes before God with that honest prayer. God, I don't even remember to eat all the time. I get to the end of the day, and I'm, I'm in such despair that I forget to eat. I forgot to eat my bread, he says. And then he talks about having loud groaning and bones that cling to his flesh. He says he's like a desert owl of the wilderness, like an owl of the waste places. Okay? Some bird, some say owl, some say, we don't know exactly what kind of bird they were talking about, but some bird that lives in a dump. That's what I feel like right now, God, like a bird living in a dump. And then he, he uses another bird analogy. He says, I lie awake. I'm like a lonely sparrow on the housetop. Sometimes when we're suffering, we feel very lonely. Maybe, maybe you've felt that before. Maybe you feel that now. That as you endure suffering, 
you feel kind of like a sparrow on a housetop. That you're looking around and you see life going on. You know life is going on down there somewhere, but you feel very unengaged and, and detached from it. Like everything else is just happening and you're just a lonely little sparrow sitting on a rooftop wondering if anybody even notices. We got probably, you know, a, a bird probably on top of this roof right now and nobody knows about it. You kind of feel like that. You feel lonely and you're suffering. We know that. We can feel that. And, and the psalmist is coming before God with that honest prayer. He says, I eat ashes like bread, mingle my tears with drink in verse 9. He's wondering if God's angry at me. He says, God, because of your indignation and anger, you have taken me down, taken me up and thrown me down. He's wondering, man, maybe all this stuff that's happening, maybe it's because God's angry at me. He must be. God must be angry at me if I'm suffering this much, right? He comes before God with all of that. He feels very temporary. I don't know if you noticed that. He, he says things in verse 3 like, my days pass away like smoke. He says things in verse 11 like, my days are like an evening shadow and I wither away like grass. He's feeling very small, temporary, insignificant. God, I got, I, I don't even know why you're, you're keeping me. I don't even know why you're sustaining me, God. Just worn out, lonely, in distress. I cry a lot. My tears mingle with my drink. The psalmist is feeling all these things, and as he feels all these things when he prays, he tells God all of it. So that's the first thing I want us to learn about how to go about praying, how to use this tool of praying. When we're suffering, we don't have to feel, some of you feel like, oh, I don't want to be a complainer. I've got it so much better than so many other people, so I'm just not going to bring any of my junk to God. Go ahead, bring it all. He can handle it. Bring all of your junk right before the throne and say, God, I'm dealing with this and this and this and this happens. Also, bring it all. Bring it all to Him. We come to Him as we are spent in suffering. We come to Him with honest prayers. And we can do that because of what comes next. But here's, here's, here's a problem that I think a lot of us have. A lot of us maybe don't have a problem with that. We can pray verses 1 through 11, but did you notice how Psalm 102 doesn't have verses 1 through 11 and then say amen and the prayer. That's it, right? Like, God, I am a mess. And let me tell you how I'm a mess. Blah, 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 amen. That's not all. There's more to prayer than that. And that, that sometimes maybe that's the only prayer that you can eke out. And if that's the only prayer that you can eke out, that's better than not praying at all. Coming to God with an honest prayer. But we had uh, uh, George Kenworthy was here a couple weeks ago. He did a marriage conference. And I wish more of us could have been a part of it. It was great. Uh, but he did, he did some great training. And, and he used this illustration. And I couldn't remember the whole thing, but it was in his book too. So I went back and I read it. And I read in his book this illustration of finding a group of Christians. This is a study or something that was done. They found a group of Christians that were struggling with depression. And they took this group of Christians struggling with depression and they, they did three different things with them, put them in three different groups. One of the groups got counseling. Okay? A second group sat down with somebody who instructed them biblically about how to pray. And then they prayed with them. And then there was a third group, and that third group was told, go home and pray about it. Okay? And here were the results that they found. With the group that got some counseling, about 50% of the people noticed some improvement. Okay? Just counseling, about 50% of the people noticed some improvement. The people that, were, that received instruction in how to pray, 
and then had somebody pray with them and model that for them, 85% of those people saw improvement. Those that were told, go home and pray about it on your own, 0% of those people saw any improvement, and some of them even got worse. And the reason is, they said, that when we just are kind of are left to our own and we just pray the way we think we should pray and we don't, we're not really taught how to pray biblically, prayer just ends up being a pity party. It just ends up being, God, I'm coming before you and this is all the stuff that's wrong and that's it and then we're done. And so the, the, their, their suggestion coming out of that study was we need to teach people to pray biblically. That's what seems to be most effective. When people are spent and suffering engaged in or involved in just feeling depressed, we need to teach them. One of the things we need to do, counseling's not a bad thing, but just saying, well, just go pray about it is maybe not the best thing. A better thing to do would be for us to pray with them and teach them how to pray. And so this morning, that's part of what we're doing. Part of what we need to do as we learn to pray biblically is we need to do this. This is the second point. We need to remember God's promises as we pray. And we need to know trust that God is sovereign. God is sovereign, and we need to remember his promises as we pray. I was going to bring with, and I forgot, I left them in my bathroom, but I've got this stack of note cards to help me with this. Some promises from God that I'm seeking to memorize so that as I pray, I can be praying the words of God. I'm memorizing something like John 6, 35, when it says, and Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never hunger again. And so as I pray, I can come to God and I can say, God, list out all my needs, all the things I'm struggling with. But then I can also say, but God, I know that you say that Jesus is the bread of life. And if I come to him, I will never hunger again. And so, God, I want to be satisfied with Jesus. I come to him because he is the bread of life. He is what I most need. So I can pray that way. I can pray informed by scripture. And so we need to pray trusting in God's sovereignty and remembering God's promises. I don't know how you're going to do that, but think of some way that you might work on doing that. We remember things. Look at verse 12, okay? This is where I want to see this in this psalm. Verse 1 through 11, all about how bad he's doing. Verse 12, it starts with this. But you, O Lord, are enthroned forever. You're remembered throughout all generations. Okay, God, I am feeling like a mess right now, but God, here's the truth. I know as I'm praying, I'm coming before God and I'm saying, God, you're on the throne. I trust in the midst of my suffering, I trust, God, that you are still on the throne. Whatever I'm dealing with, my diagnosis, my struggle, does not kick you off the throne. You are still solidly seated on your throne, sovereign over all things. You are enthroned forever, O oh God. And we need to remember that as we come before God in prayer. Some doubt the sovereignty of God when they begin to suffer. We start thinking things like, well, if God is really powerful, if he's really sovereign, if he can really do anything, why isn't he doing something about my problem right now? We wonder, is this just senseless? Does this have any point? I'm not learning anything from this. God, why do you keep doing this? I like this quote from R.C. Sproul. He says this, if God is truly sovereign, if he rules over all things, then nothing that ever happens is senseless. Here's something that happens at least for me, when I'm going through a hard time, a hard season of life, maybe you can relate. You go through a hard time of life, you get selfish a little bit. Get a little bit selfish. I, I do it when I get a cold. Like, I'm a little baby. Like, I get a cold. Like I, And that's not suffering. 
Like I get a cold, not feeling very well for a day. I don't feel much like serving my wife and my kids. That's not the first thing on my mind. Well, first thing on my mind is they better be serving me because I'm really miserable right now. I have a cold, right? We get really selfish in our suffering. We can. We can become very selfish. But I want you to notice one thing that the psalmist does. In his suffering, as he battles probably selfishness and wallowing in self-pity, look at what the psalmist does in verse 13. It says, You will arise, God, and have pity on Zion. It's the time to favor her. The appointed time has come. Now, Zion in, in, in the Psalms refers to either Jerusalem or God's people. Okay, So he's referring to God's people. One thing that the psalmist is doing as he suffers himself is he is praying for the good of God's people. God, would you come and be good to your people? Take that prayer request list out of the bulletin in the midst of your suffering and lift up the body. Say, God, don't, don't neglect your own suffering. Bring that all before God. Do verses 1 through 11, but also do verse 13. And lift up your family, your church family. Lift them up before God, and you'll start to forget a little bit about your own suffering. That's one thing that will happen. You become less selfish. Charles Spurgeon, here's what he said. I'm going to take. I'm going to. I'm going to move his quote a little bit because he uses like the thine and bethetist and that kind of thing. So I'm going to take that out and just make it more modern English. But here's what he says: A selfish man in trouble is exceedingly hard to comfort, because the springs of his comfort lie entirely within himself. So when he's sad, all the springs are dry. But when you bend your knee in prayer to God, limit not your petitions to the narrow circle of your own life, as tried as your own life may be, but send out your longing prayers for the church's prosperity, and in then your own soul shall be refreshed. As we go through suffering, we ought to be people that pray for the good of the rest of the body. That if our prayers are only confined to our narrow circle of life, we're going to end up probably wallowing in a little self-pity. But as we suffer, we ought to be praying for our church family. We, we know that this is true, that we become less selfish as we focus on the needs of others. The team that just went to Haiti, they, they experienced that. As you went to Haiti, it's not like you had no problems going in. You had issues, you had things you were dealing with going into this trip to Haiti. But as you were serving other people, loving other people, praying for other people, you kind of forgot about your own issues for a while. That's what happens. Psalmist loves God's people. He's saying in verse 14 that, that even your servants hold her stones dear and have pity on her dust. So much he loves God's people. Well, we could read more. There, there's more promises there. Verse 15 says, Nations will fear the name of the Lord. All the kings of the earth will fear your glory. Okay, all these good things that we need to remember as we pray. That God, it is your desire and it is your promise that one day, we read in Philippians 2, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We need to remember that as we pray. Join us tomorrow at 7 o'clock. We're going to pray for the church. You've got personal needs, suffering of your own. Come and bring those and we'll pray for you in your suffering and then we'll take you out of that as we pray for the rest of the needs of the body as well. 7 o'clock tomorrow night. Come and pray with us. The good news, though, that even in his sovereignty, God is sovereign. Uh, wait. <laughs> that, that's true, too. That's not what I meant to say, though. Even in his sovereignty, God is sympathetic. 
we think of this king seated on the throne forever, remembered through all generations, and we kind of think, yeah, but it, does he even care then about me? Me, lowly me. Does he care about me? Look at verse 17. He regards the prayer of the destitute and does not despise their prayer. God, you are enthroned forever. You will have pity on your people. God, you are God. You are king over all kings, Lord over all lords, yet you will listen. You will regard the prayer of the destitute. You will not despise my prayer. Thank you, God. We come before him with confidence. A lot of things that, that we could also see, more promises of God in 18 through 22. I'm not going to take time to, to actually look through those because I want to get to this last point, which really points us to Jesus and prepares us for communion together. Last point is this. We are secure as we trust in God's permanence. We trust in God's permanence. I read verses 25 to 27 in the sermon last week as we talked about going to God when we get old to point out the fact that God doesn't get old. God doesn't get worn out. God, God isn't wearing out like we seem to be wearing out. He does not. So it says in verses 25 to 27, Of old you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You'll change them like a robe, and they will pass away. But you, God, are the same, and your years have no end. So how, in the midst of our suffering, remembering God's sovereignty, trusting in His promises, how is it that we are secure? We're secure because God is unchanging. He does not change. He gives us great security as we suffer. Now, this psalm, many psalms are are referred to as messianic psalms, and they usually group this psalm as one of those, as a messianic psalm. That means it's a psalm that very specifically points us to Jesus. You might wonder, well, how does this psalm point us to Jesus? Verses 25 to 27, you might even want to write this in the margin next to verses 25 to 27 of your Bible. Verses 25 to 27 are quoted in Hebrews chapter 1, 10 through 12. Psalm 102, 25 to 27 is quoted in Hebrews chapter 1, 10 through 12, as the author of Hebrews says, this is about Jesus. The author of Hebrews, inspired by the Holy Spirit, looks at Psalm 102, 25 to 27, and he says, this is about Jesus. And he applies it to Jesus in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 10 through 12. So how is it that this psalm points us to Jesus? A lot of times when when New Testament authors would quote from the Old Testament, they would quote a part of something, but they were usually referring to everything around it. Kind of a unique way that they would do things. People, they assumed knew the Old Testament scriptures well enough that they could just quote part of one psalm, but they would intend that the entire psalm would come to mind of the people that heard that, and that would all point them to Jesus. So how does Psalm 102 point us to Jesus and prepare us for communion together this morning? Well, first, I think Psalm 102 points us to the suffering Messiah. Just as Psalm 102 verses 1 through 11 give words to our suffering. Okay? Some of you, you could, you could borrow some words from Psalm 102, 1 through 11 as you pray because you're feeling that way. And you don't know how to put words to it, but the psalmist might be able to put words to it. Psalm 102, 1 through 11. So it reminds us, it gives words to our suffering, but it also ought to remind us of the suffering of our Savior. Are you reminded in your suffering of the suffering of our Savior? 
We knew that Jesus would be, Isaiah predicted that. He, he prophesied that. In Isaiah 53, speaking of Jesus, he says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. So as we suffer and as we read of the suffering of the psalmist, we ought to be pointed to Jesus, our Messiah, who suffered in our place. We see that also in the book of Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10, it says this, Hebrews 2.10, For it was fitting that he, Jesus, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. And then in Hebrews 12, 3 and 4, we read this. Consider him. Listen, as you endure your suffering, may this be an encouragement to you. Hebrews 12, 3 and 4. Consider him, Jesus, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. Somehow, in our suffering we find fellowship with Christ in His suffering. We are pointed in our suffering in a way that we cannot be in any other way to the suffering of Jesus. It says that in Philippians 3.10. Philippians 3.10 talks about our fellowship with Him in His suffering, becoming like Him in His death. It says in Philippians 3.10. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, Discipleship is being bound to the suffering Christ. That's, that's what discipleship means. You want to be a disciple of Jesus? You will suffer. And it's somehow a, a way that binds us to him, helps us, helps us to understand and get a glimpse, get a taste of his suffering, which was so much deeper than ours and very much different than ours, much more intense than ours. Jesus is, our suffering points us to Jesus. But then we can also see how this psalm points us to Jesus in verses 12 through 22 as we see Jesus as the fulfillment of God's promises. Jesus is the fulfillment of the promises of God in verses 12 through 22. Jesus cried out in his suffering. He asked God the Father to let this pass, but he finished his prayer by saying, nevertheless, not what I will, but your will be done. Jesus knew the promise of the Father. And that's what got him through his suffering. The verse right before the one I just read, Hebrews 12, 2, says this. Who for the joy set before him, speaking of Jesus, for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. There is Jesus seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That's where he is now. And that was the joy set before him. And because of that joy set before him, he endured the cross. He could endure the cross. And so, likewise, <coughs> as we go through suffering, we remember Jesus and the joy set before him and the joy that for those of us that are in him we have that joy set before us as well and so we endure suffering in that way do you remember Jesus as you go through suffering do you remember how Jesus fulfills God's promises I could point out a bunch more of the ways that Jesus fulfills God's promises verse 12 you O Lord are enthroned forever Jesus is enthroned forever he, Jesus had, has pity on Israel just as God does in verse 13. As, as Jesus comes into Israel, you might remember from Matthew chapter 9, as Jesus comes into Israel, he looks on the people and what does it say? 
as he looks on the people, he has compassion with them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promises that we see in Psalm 102. Jesus suffered for our security. We are secure, not ultimately because of prayer, but because of what Jesus has done. And we remind ourselves of that in prayer. Jesus came, you know, our suffering, when I suffer, I usually don't sign up for it. I don't know anybody here that signs up for it. You don't want to suffer. We do it very involuntarily. But Jesus came as a voluntary substitute for us. Jesus said in John 10, no one takes it from me. Speaking of his life, John 10, 18, he says, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This is the charge I've received from my Father. This is what Jesus came to do. And because of his suffering, all who trust in him are eternally secure. You want to know security? You want to know you are secure for all of eternity? That you will spend eternity worshiping him forever in his presence? You want to be saved? Then you trust in Jesus, who did really come. He really died. You must believe that Jesus really lived a perfect life, and he really died a death as our substitute. The suffering that we experience simply points us to his suffering. And so we are pointed to the suffering of Jesus, who died in our place as our substitute. He died the death that we deserve to die. As his body was broken, as his blood was shed, that ought to have been mine and yours. We were the ones, because of our sin, who deserved the wrath and punishment of our great God. But Jesus came and endured suffering in our place, on our behalf, as our substitute. One of the hymns that I love says this, Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place, condemned he stood. Sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Jesus coming and suffering in our place so that we might forever be secure in him. That reminds us of God's great worthiness that we ought to turn to him and say, Hallelujah, what a Savior. So we remember, as we come to the table now this morning, we will remember that Jesus died, that Jesus rose again, that Jesus really is seated on the throne, and Jesus really will return again. And we remember all of those things, and those promises are sure. And because of those sure promises, we can be secure, even in our suffering. The question, as we come to the table, is are you secure in Christ? Has your pardon been sealed with His blood? Do you trust in Christ alone for salvation? He is the way and the truth and the life. No one can have fellowship with God apart from Him. And so that's what we come to remember. For all of us who are in Christ, for all of us who who have repented of our sin and trusted in Jesus and have new life in Him, have this kind of hope, have this kind of security in Him, we come to this table this morning to remember, to be reminded again, so that we might worship Him for what He has done for us.